Hello, everyone. Welcome to C-Suite Talks, a podcast that takes you inside some of the most interesting businesses and industries today, explores career success, and how we can make a difference. We invite you to join us on this journey. Welcome to C-Suite Talks. I'm Diane Gubin, co-CEO. And I'm Beth Hilving, co-CEO of C-Suite. Today, we're so pleased to have Lisa Sunan with us. She's the Managing Director, Digital Technology Group Lead for Manette, Phelps, and Phillips, a professional services firm, and she's in the San Francisco office. Lisa partners with creative, exceptional leaders to build high-value enterprise that thrive in a transforming world. As a venture capital investor, industry advisor, and serial entrepreneur, Lisa lives in the worlds of innovation, new venture creation, and where technology meets evolving industries. Lisa is also an author of Venture Valkyrie. Did I say that right, Lisa? Venture Valkyrie. Okay. It's a blog, so check it out. It's HTTP um, vent, U-R-E-V-L-K-Y-R-I-E.com and host Tectonics podcast on iTunes, very catchy name, and on the faculty of UC Berkeley Hop. She is frequently a public speaker and founder of csweetener.org. And so I asked Lisa to tell us a little bit about what is csweetener.org and how did she get it started and the goal? Yes, because it sounds so much like C-Suite. <laughs> so Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show today. I really appreciate being here. C-Sweetener is a company I started some time ago that is, it's sort of like a match.com for matching women rising in leadership, primarily in healthcare, with mentors, both male and female mentors, to help them advance. Um, and they talk about all sorts of things with their, you know, mentors, they, uh, career issues, negotiating, work-life balance, you name it. Um, and, you know, we have um, hundreds of mentors and um, more, men- you know, mentees. Uh, the company was sold to um, the HLTH Foundation a couple years ago, but it was started by me when I um, was getting emails or calls from so many women every week asking for advice. And I, you know, fairly visible in terms of public speaking about women's issues and the like and um, venture capital. And and I think a lot of people, you know, saw me as somebody they could ask these questions. It became so voluminous that I couldn't do it anymore. (laughs) If only there was some place to send people, if there was only some way to find them, even the right person, because I'm not always the right person. Gosh, the world needs a, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) One of those. Um, type of things, but it was um, catalyzed specifically by my time as a fellow at the Aspen Institute, where I was looking for a project to to lead and start. And that was, you know, those two things kind of came together at the same time. Oh, that's great. Wow. So it's wonderful. So, you know, I want to find out more about the work you do, you know, with Manette and other projects. But really, let me ask you, how does Lisa become the Lisa of today? (laughs) I mean, you've got this (laughs) Very prestigious background. Thank so, you. how did you wander us through your path? <laughs> um, I think it's a series of accidental, you know, happenings that looks in retrospect like it meant some, like followed a pattern. Um, you know, I really set out to do none of the things I'm doing now or have done over the past you know, thirty years. <laughs> um, I was originally going to be an investigative journalist. Um, 
And I happened into the business world through some internships when I was finishing college and really liked it and happened in the healthcare world when I found the tech world to be pretty boring back back in the 80s. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate to join up in a startup, which I had a pretty big role in, focused on behavioral health in the late 80s and 90s that, you know, we grew from very, very early stage to 800 million in revenue over a nine year period of time. That's amazing. And I got to, I got a really deep lesson on how the healthcare system worked broadly, economically, system wise, structurally, all of it. And it it was a huge uh, foundational experience in so many ways. And when we sold the company, ultimately, um, Several of us branched off and started a venture fund focused on the same kinds of things that we had done at that company, meaning um, looking for companies that had methods of improving quality and reducing cost at the same time, which at that time was considered kind of a crazy idea. Everything, you know, I think people generally believe that everything good in healthcare would cost more. Uh, it's definitely untrue. And, um, you know, since then, I've been in the venture world as an investor um, through a few different iterations and also as a consultant over, you know, in my current iteration, I do both. So it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> oh, it sounds that like sounds very, very interesting. So how did you end up at Manette? How did they persuade you to come on board? And we, we love Manette. Full disclosure, Manette is one of our sponsors and we adore them. <laughs> Manette's a great company. Yeah, no, Manette's a great company. It's been around since the 60s, you know, it was founded by Chuck Manat, who was the chairman of the U.S. Democratic Party at the time, started as a law firm, um, has diversified significantly into a professional services firm. We have a strategy consulting firm. We have a real estate brokerage. We do many different things. Um, and we have a venture fund. And, and the chairman of the company, Bill Bernstein, and I have known each other since my healthcare startup days when he was one of our lawyers. Oh, Okay. And we stayed in touch closely over the years. Um, and when I was leaving GE Ventures, where I ran their healthcare venture fund, he asked me if I would join um, and, you know, offered me uh, the solution to my dilemma at the time, which was, I don't know if I want to go back to venture or to operations role or to consulting for a while. And he said, if you come here, you can do all three. Oh, that's great. Oh, win-win. <laughs> so I've been doing that um, for the last three years. It is a terrific company. I've learned a ton and I've um, been able to contribute a lot, I think. But it's I think I'm finally beginning to answer the ultimate question. So I probably will be moving to a, a le- you know, a status of an advisor to the firm and, and, and moving on to something else soon. But um, yeah. They're a great partner. Well, I'm sure it'll be fabulous, whatever it is that you do next. Thank you. Um, as well. I hope so. So what is the difference between working as a VC and then as an entrepreneur? What do you see as a difference? Yeah, you've done both. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's so different. And so it's so different in many ways. And it's so the same in many ways. I mean, on the on the difference part, um, you know, if you're running a company, especially a young company where you're always kind of scratching for you know, cash and people and, you know, you're making it up every day, uh, pretty much um, how you do something different, differently than others and, and, and succeed. And, you know, you are ultimately the person they call when the server goes down and, you know, or anything else happens. And 
you know, it's, it's really intense. Um, but it's incredibly rewarding too, if you can manage the, the, the stress and risk tolerance. Um, and hours. <laughs> yeah, hours. Um, because you build something that you feel very deeply connected to. I mean, it's like a, it's like a child almost when you build one of these companies. Um, you probably see it more than your children. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's that. On the other hand, being an investor, you get to spread that sort of interest in, in over many companies, you know, that, that focus and attention. Nobody calls you when the server goes down. They just report it to you later. Right. <laughs> if they tell you at all. <laughs> yeah, really. But you feel this huge sense of responsibility in terms of shepherding people's money and deciding, you know, whether this or that is a good investment. And it isn't always so, you know, so you have this, the difference of, it's a different kind of stress, that of the fiduciary responsibility to, your, to the investors in your fund. And while companies have that too, investors in their company, I don't think they think about that most days. They think about growth. They think about adding and growing and expanding. And, you know, whereas on the venture side, you're pretty much thinking about, you know, how do you effectively shepherd the money that you've been given? You, and you spend a lot of time advising companies. Um, if you're a good venture person, you spend a lot of time advising them and you have absolute certainty they will only listen to you occasionally. <laughs> you don't have the power oh, okay. to, uh, you have the power to influence, but not to impact, you know, and um, it's very different. So did you find any difficulties or problems being a woman versus a man in the VC world? Were there yeah. stories that you can share with our <laughs> listeners? <laughs> yeah, especially since you were doing this in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, I was on the early side of being um, female in venture. Um, it's still, frankly, not that um, full of women. Yeah, so I was pretty early to the w- woman in venture thing um, back in the, in the late 90s. Frankly, the number of women partners at venture funds hasn't changed that much. It's gotten somewhat better. I think it's gone from 9% to 12% or something like that. Um, over, I've been in venture since 1998. So however many years that is, it's not, it's not rapid growth. I think most of the time women who've managed to succeed have started their own funds. It's rare to find a fund with lots of women in it. There are some, but there are not a lot of them that weren't started by them. Um, and most of the time when women raise funds, they're smaller funds. Um, because it's harder for them to attract the capital. Yeah, we've heard that. Because it's harder for them to get the track record. It's sort of the, the never-ending, you know, circle of difficulty. Yeah, um, it's true. And I, it, it's hard to break into the club, you know. It's hard to get in, you know, as a VC, you're in this trying to build syndicates of investors to invest together in companies. And it's hard to create a posse sometimes, you know, and, and get people that want to work with you. Um, either because of, you know, overt sexism or just, you know, they people flock with their buddies. Right. And, um, and take care of them. You know, I definitely had experiences where I wasn't taken as seriously uh, by, by others. And um, I, I've actually written fairly extensively about some of these issues on my blog, uh, Venture Valkyrie, about, for instance, a time when um, I was the chairman of the board of a company and we were interviewing bankers and the three different companies had come in to pitch us. Uh, we were hiring a banker to take the company public. And, um, you know, one of the gentlemen, young gentlemen at one of the banks 
you know, like everybody went around and shook everybody's hand in the room. I was standing over by the coffee and he uh, assumed I was the assistant and, and didn't shake my hand. Oh, I thought you were going to say to ask for coffee. <laughs> that, that was probably this time, next. This time it was worse. <laughs> I would happily hand somebody coffee. Um, but he just literally went around shaking hands and he pulled his hand back when he got to me. Uh, oh my gosh. How insulting. I hope you didn't hire them. <laughs> then I sat down at the head of the table and said that, um, well, I'd like welcome them to make their pitch. They were not going to get selected. And oh, good it for was you. really interesting oh, to you. hear the reaction in the room, both from my fellow board members and investors and from that bank. <laughs> um, pretty sure that guy didn't make it to the next day on his job, but, um, yeah, I mean, that kind of thing is not unheard of. You know, I don't think that it was a, an unusual incident, frankly, for, you know, uh, I think it's getting a little better, but... Um, not dramatically. We're a long way from equality there. We're a long way. And, you know, it's the same experience. We can't legislate what you're talking about. You can't legislate that everybody's going to form these posses and invest together. But we have done that with women on boards. So... In your experience, how has the women on board experience changed from your vantage point? Women on boards? Um, well, the biggest change has been the legislation in California mandating women on boards. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, has catalyzed that activity. There also is a lot of um, support from the institutional investor community who have gotten more serious about gender diversity and, and equity and equality. Um, so there are definitely a lot more women on boards than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of our biggest, um, for C-suite, initiatives. that's one of our biggest initiatives. And we it has drawn such a crowd of li- listeners and attendees to the virtual events. And then we've had fantastic women come and speak to that um, and start to see placement as well. Yeah, so I mean, I good. think, you know, it's interesting. I get, that's one of the things I get called about by women all the time, looking for board seats. And, you know, I think some people have glorified what that is, you know. That's right. a fancy thing. Honestly, it's a lot of hard work and not always rewarding. Um, right. Sometimes it's great, you know, when it when it works, um, when the company works well together right. and, and the, with the board. Right, because everybody wants the paid board positions too, right? Yeah, which is almost <laughs> always public boards, not private boards. Right, and, um, right, right. It's very hard to get those seats unless you've been the CEO of a company, especially a public company is preferred. And since so few women have been in those roles, it's harder to get. There's a lot more expansion to the next level of, you know, women now. And diverse candidates. We've heard that, too, where they're just calling out diverse candidates to get them on boards. And, you know, a friend of ours said, if you want me to have a a voice and an opinion, then I will be happy to talk to you. If you're just pulling me in for color, forget it. Yeah. Right. Well, I think the same thing with being pulled in because you're female in some cases. But, you know, I, I, you know right. whenever people right. say that, I always say to myself, you know, I'll take it. I'll take that slot if you're calling me just because I'm female, because I can show you how good I can be and how much I can contribute. And maybe you'll learn something. Yeah, know? I agree. So I I'm, agree. I'm OK with that to a, to a point. Right. What did you feel as you were going through your career was there something in your career path that you felt really helped propel you to who you are and what you did that you could advise others to do? I think the most valuable thing I did was start writing my blog. 
in some ways. <laughs> oh, interesting. Because it provided me a national and actually to a certain extent international platform. Not that I knew or did anything differently, but that people heard about it, listened to me. And I, you know, had a point of view and I was effective at marketing the, that because I'm a marketing person by background. And I, um, it's really interesting. It led me to lots of speaking opportunities. Mm, okay. And that led me to lots of networking opportunities. And I'd say the biggest asset I have really in my life, my career life is my, my network, um, which is fortunately big and uh, valuable, so valuable. And, you know, that is something I think women need to make sure to invest in is building that network. Yep. And following with people through their careers. Yes. We sing this every day. Yeah. It's, it's a huge deal. That's why we started C-Suite was because of network building and getting the executive levels to network with each other. And we're starting to see the fruits of that and it's working. We're really anecdotally hearing about women working together at the most executive levels. And it's very positive. Yep. So I'd say that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa, your, your blog, do you feel a blog is a, as effective today as when you started with all the noise on social media, et cetera? Mm. On the one hand, there's an awful lot out there. On the other hand, I've got a following, so that's nice. It continues to grow. And I, you know, I look at it now for me as a creative outlet as much as anything else. Um, sometimes I use it to promote a particular thing I care about at the moment and use that as a lever to other, other ways of communicating about it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty useful and, and people know me for it in my field anyway. And so I know that when I don't write, you know, if I go through a period of writer's block, which occasionally does happen, I um, get calls or notes from people. You know? <laughs> yes. And then you all of a sudden you have new material. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, I don't know that it's as important as it used to be to my own development, but it's important to me. Oh, well, that's good. Well, yeah, Lisa, again, you have such a wide range of work that you've been doing. So tell us, is there an interesting fact or hobby that you have that nobody really knows about you? <laughs> uh, I'm a Scrabble addict. That can be hard. That can be very hard, too. I have three, four, five Scrabble games online going on at any time, at any oh, moment in time. That's funny. Nobody oh. wants to play with me on the weekends anymore because... You know, I'm good. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you too, what tips do you have for women as they move forward in their careers if they want to reinvent themselves? Because you've been down a couple different paths. And I know that women think that way too, as you know, as they go through the corporate ladder, they get to a certain position, they're like, Ugh, it's time to move on. So what advice would you give them? Especially since in many cases, you kind of jumped without a safety net. You just kind of said, I'm going to go do this. I think that's probably the biggest advice is be a little fearless, you know, trust yourself and jump. Because if you, if you plan for the perfect moment, as you, we all know, it never arrives. Right. And, um, and I recognize it's hard because, you know, you got to have the financial wherewithal to take some time if it takes some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it does. And, and I also think it takes time to, to really network and build momentum 
in a search for something new. Part of it may be spend some time volunteering doing that new thing that you want to do or, you know, engaging in some group that does it in some way. So you get some credibility, you get the lingo down, you get knowledge, you know, and that you can parlay into that and figure out how what you do now Mm -hmm. might amplify your success in those areas. I think a lot of times things are more related than people think, you know, skill sets are transferable, um, you know, tools are transferable. You may do a different type of thing, but you're not starting from scratch. You're building. That's good. Well, the other question I liked that, that I don't know if you proposed it or if we did, but what is a lesson? Because you went to Berkeley, you know, and of course, there's all, you know, that they have stories about Berkeley, etc. What do you think is one of the most valuable things you drew away from Berkeley? What is the most valuable thing I drew away from Berkeley? Well, that isn't that an interesting question? Um, Besides beer drinking, or whatever you did. Back um, then. Yes. <laughs> Party. Party. You know, I think I learned to be I, I took a lot of classes and I had double major. Oh, good for you. What was your double major? Um, political science and journalism, mass communications. Because again, I was going to be a political journalist. That was my plan. I had it all planned out ever since I saw all the president's men when I was a little kid. Oh, good for you. Yeah. But I took a lot of other stuff along the way. And um, it was a kind of school where you could do that. There was a lot of other creative you know, stuff you could do. And I think exposing yourself to things outside your core curriculum it was really valuable and I but the biggest thing I took away from Berkeley is that you got to work you know I worked all through college I didn't always have to but I but I mostly did have to but I I wanted to and I wanted to work in professional jobs not at the ice cream store or whatever um because I felt like that was how you took your knowledge and applied it into the useful skill sets and so when I left Berkeley, I had already had a couple jobs and I, I left in a job that I had had already for a year. Um, and the importance of work, you know, it's funny when I was in grad school there later after and I kind of was forced in, in a way to make a choice between being full time in grad school or, you know, full time working. And I was not forced because of myself. I was happily doing both. Um, but my, uh, advisor in, in my grad school program at the time, you know, really wanted me to teach full time and be part of the university world full time. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't do both. Cause it was fine as far as I was concerned. Um, but he forced me to make a choice and I chose work. It was what came out of my mouth, you know, and I'm not sure if it was because I was young and pissed off that I was being told what to do. And so acting on that or if it was really what I wanted. And I think it was what a little of both. But frankly, you know, I realized that I could do fine without the rest of the degree. Or at least I felt I could at the time. And um, it was a great decision, you know. And I thought I could never really go back there to Berkeley because I'd kind of had a weird separation from the place, you know, an angry separation from the place. And that wasn't true either. That was the other thing I think I've learned is that, you know, people move on and it's okay to go back. And now I, I've been, a, you know, on faculty there for 13 years um, teaching in the business school. I wasn't in the business school, but I taught, I teach there now. Oh, what a beautiful story. And it's great. And I, um, 
I love the university experience still and being there with students who have fresh eyes on things. And it's really, it's really great. That's wonderful. Well, you know, the time has just flown by with you. And I was so excited to have you as a guest because I remember when you were on the C-suite panel, um, you have such a dry wit that just attracted me to you. And you're a cat lover. Also true. Which drew me to you as well. (laughs) So we're very sorry about your loss. Thank you. Her cat passed. But thank you so much. And Diane, why don't you um, take it away? Thank you. So uh, Lisa Sunin, uh, who is currently the uh, Managing Director of Digital Technology for Manette Phelps & Phillips, thank you so much for being with us today. We'd like to thank our sponsors. Uh, C-suite sponsors include Google, Manette, the employee benefits firm of Woodruff Sawyer, and my firm, the Executive Search and IT Consulting Amplified Professional Services. Thank you for listening today. Thanks for having me on, too. Yes, it's been fabulous. So hit the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, or everywhere you find your podcasts. Leave us a review. Five stars, of course. Of course. Follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. We love hearing from you. Uh, Check out our website, www.cswet.org. Come to our events, get active, and have a happy Thanksgiving.